Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week, with the British Open around the corner, myself and Phil Yates have been looking back at the history of the event and picking out the highlights of the last 21 stagings. Of course, it hasn't been held since 2004. And uh, as I say, myself and Phil have been uh, going through some of the great memories of what has been uh, a terrific tournament, and I'm sure it will be again this year when it's held, well, later this month now. Um, that will come later. Firstly, I want to briefly address last week's episode. A big thank you to everyone who messaged me to express support for the podcast. It's very much appreciated. However, I do now regret my tone and some of the things that I said, some of which have caused unintended upset. I'm going to retract the word poach. It was wrong to suggest WST had poached Michael McMullen, not least because it presupposes I had any hold over him in the first place. He is, of course, a free agent and right to pursue and accept any exciting opportunities. He felt, I think, it would be an awkward clash of interests appearing on one podcast run by the governing body and another independent one, which could at times be critical of the governing body. I believed this was a directive from them, but there was, I think, a mixture of miscommunication and misinterpretation, a heady brew, which led to my rather bitter monologue last week. On my part, there was also, I think, a degree of self-importance. The truth is, I loved doing the podcast with him, and was upset that it had suddenly come to an end, and I clearly, at times last week, overreacted. So to be clear, I wish Michael all the best with the new podcast. He will do a brilliant job. He's particularly good at interviewing, and of course no snooker inside out. WST are right to use someone of his skills for their podcast, and I'm sure it will be very professional. It will certainly be better produced than this one, although that's not not saying much. I do not support or endorse any tweets or messages criticising Michael. The truth is... But for him, this podcast probably would have ended during the pandemic. I thank him for all his contributions to it. And that thank you should have come last week. I tried to deflect some of the issues with humour, and that probably backfired. Ivan, the head of media at WST, has more integrity than almost anyone else I've met in the sport, and I would not wish anyone to think differently of him. He has done a difficult job well for the best part of 20 years, and for this he deserves respect. I couldn't hack it for much more than 18 months. He's been there two decades. Now, to be honest, I still think this whole affair could have been handled better by WST, but it could also have been handled better by me, and I am responsible for my behaviour. The truth is, at heart, I am a snooker fan. I'm very passionate about the sport, and almost certainly have given too much status and meaning to this podcast. It's all small beer in the scheme of things. None of this really matters or is worth any personal upset. Perhaps being a playwright, I have ascribed too much drama to what was basically a big load of nothing. This whole affair is almost the very definition of first world problems. Hopefully that will be the final word on it. So enough soap opera, down to business. On to myself and Phil discussing the history of the British Open. Now there is an edit point because for some reason this recording device stopped without warning just as Phil's in the middle of an anecdote. See if you can spot where it comes. You will spot it. Put it this way, there's no prize. Uh, Just before we go into the chat, we are proud members of the Sports Social Network. Check out their other podcasts. You can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. In the meantime, here is myself and Phil Yates looking at the great moments of the British Open. 
Well, Phil, uh, first of all, it's good to have the British Open back. It ran initially from 1985 to 2004, so it began in the middle of the snooker boom. ITV had other events, but the, the sort of concept of ranking tournaments was starting to become a thing, wasn't it? And this was one of them, and very quickly became a big one and uh, made history. I mean, it hadn't been many ranking events at this point, but made history in its first year, 1985, the first non-British final, uh, Sylvina Francisco from South Africa, and one of the most popular players of the era, the Canadian Kirk Stevens. Yeah, and of course, it not only made a record, it also created headlines because that match was played in quite bad spirits. The tabloids were awash with stories about it. Basically, Silvino accused Kirk Stevens of taking drugs and backstage there was a, an argy-bargy. And of course, this eventually came to light. So it was quite a bad-tempered final. It wasn't a particularly high-quality one either. And Silvino won it 12-9. It was his lone ranking title. In those days, live football on BBC and ITV, you know, wasn't really a thing. FA Cup maybe, but sort of live league, I think there was maybe a contract dispute. There wasn't a lot. So that Sunday afternoon was basically there to mop up if you've got a ratings winner. And Snooker at the time was a ratings winner. So the final was three sessions. But it, it finished in the afternoon. It was Saturday afternoon, Saturday night, Sunday afternoon. That final got over 15 million viewers. Now, I said Kirk Stevens was popular, which he was. Francisco wouldn't have been one of the most popular players, but it just showed the appetite at that point for snooker. Four channels, we've got to say. Not a lot else going on, but even so, 15 million. Absolutely. It was a wonderful figure. And in many respects, I think it was an even more wonderful figure than the... Uh, Davis-Taylor final, because obviously that was exceptional. It was the World Championship. This was just a, a common or garden tournament. To get uh, those kind of audiences, well, extraordinary, really. The next couple of finals were also well-watched, and you can understand why. 1986, Steve Davis beat Willie Thorne, two highly visible characters. And then in 1987, our pal Neil Foles was denied by Jimmy White. The... The concept of playing the last session in the afternoons worked well if the match went anywhere remotely close. But of course, they were tripped up in 1988 when Stephen Hendry absolutely decimated Mike Hallett 13-2 and he led 12-2 overnight. So they came back for a single frame the following afternoon. This is the only problem, isn't it, with long matches? We saw it in the 89 World Final where Davis beat Parrott 18-3. If they're a runaway, they're a washout. It's a procession. And that did, as you say, and you know, they've, they've set aside Sunday afternoon for a big snooker programme and there's one frame, and it probably was a quick frame, no, an entry, and that's it, and uh, what a washout. But I just want to go back to the, the first three because, of course, they're all sponsored by Julux. Julux. They used to have that lovely Julux dog, didn't they, they brought out to I mean, that, 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 there's people of a certain age will, will, will associate that with this tournament. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Well, we've had all different kinds of sponsors for the, the British Open, but that was the most... Uh, memorable, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, it was a really good event. And I know you've got a stat about the fact that the the prize money for it was immense yeah. for those days. And all of this talk about, oh, the Triple Crown, it's always been the be-all and end-all. And this tournament, many of others as well, but this tournament proves it wasn't. Well, Dickie Davis, uh, there's footage on YouTube, the ITV presenter, uh, the 86 British Open, so the second one, he comes on and he says, uh, welcome to the biggest tournament of the season so far. And in terms of prize money, it was. It dwarfed the UK and the Masters and uh, had a first prize at the time. I think it was the biggest first prize and obviously the World Championship shortly after beat it. Anyway, you mentioned Hendry, uh, 88. Of course, he'd already won a ranking event uh, 
the Grand Prix when he was only 18, but this was the start of not only the winning years, but as you say, the trouncing years. He wasn't just beating people, he just started to bash them up. And the thing was, it wasn't just a means of getting over the line as quickly as possible and going home. He actually gained an awful amount of pleasure from beating people as heavily as he possibly could. Bear in mind, Mike was his doubles partner. That's right. right. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And, and part of the same management yeah. team. He relished it. He wanted to win. Well, he was disappointed he didn't win 13 nil. That's mm. the mindset he had. And I think that's one of the reasons why he was such a, a phenomenal and prolific winner. Because he wasn't satisfied with just winning. He wanted to win stylishly and buy as much as he possibly could. Although... His next British Open final, he had to fight really hard. Well, come on in due course to the best British Open final, but I think the candidate, you probably would agree, the worst, was 1989. Tony Mayo, Dean Reynolds, in terms of stand-up, but in terms of story, it was a, a big story. I sort of look back at this, and there was a lot of talk about how at long last Tony Mayo's won a tournament. He was only 29, you know. He was actually quite young, but of course he'd had some near misses. And I suppose being Steve Davis's doubles partner for the 80s, Steve had won everything, and he was yet to win a big one. This was at the time when Mio, who was a really entertaining player for the vast majority of his career, decided to become slower. And in terms of winning the title, it worked. But the final, I have to say, <laughs> I don't think it was just the worst British Open final. And this is just my personal opinion. And this is nothing against Dean Reynolds or Tony Mio, because they were both terrific players and they both had wonderful careers. But I think that final is the worst I've ever seen. <laughs> there was no drama, it was 13-6, and the standard was very, very poor. It was quite slow, it was scrappy, disjointed, you name it. It was the, the antithesis of a classic. But as I said, big story, and of course the, the, the sort of coded to it was, it was slow, and then they played each other, didn't they, at the World Championship shortly afterwards, and that was also slow. But it was only Dean Reynolds that got warned by the referee, and he wasn't happy. I mean, he, he lost again, and well, there were tears, I think, afterwards. And I could understand Dean's point of view there. I'm not saying the referee should have warned Tony Mio, but once he'd warned Dean Reynolds, surely he had to warn Mio, because to me, they were both equally guilty of, of playing slowly. I didn't think, you know, it was that bad at the time. I was surprised when the first warning was issued. I just assumed when he went over and spoke to Reynolds, he would then go over to Mio, and he didn't. But uh, Mio, of course, thought, understandably, he's just won the British Open playing more circumspect, defensive and slow snooker. He thought, OK, this is the way to get to the top of the tree. But very quickly after that, his career went downhill. Well, by this point, ITV had got live football back. So 1990, there were two changes. The first was that the final went to two sessions, best of 19. And the second, it was the first of three years of an open draw, completely open draw, FA Cup style, like they're doing this year. And it was won by... Still possibly the most unlikely ranking event winner of all, Bob Chapron. And I guess the, the temptation then was to say, well, you know, this, this FA Cup draw, that's the reason. Of course, the next two years, Henry White dispelled that. But Bob Chapron, well, first of all, he should have lost to Robidoux, shouldn't he? That's the first thing to say in an early round. A really good friend of ours, a guy <laughs> called Bruce Beckett. He had a, a multiplayer uh, accumulator. And the last leg was Alain Robidoux to beat Bob Chapron. And Robidoux, I think, needed four snookers in the decider. And he won <laughs> Bob Chaperon. He, uh, sorry, Chaperon needed four snookers to beat Robbie Doo. And somehow Chaperon got over the line. I don't know who was feeling more sick, Bruce or, or Robbie Doo. It was an extraordinary victory. And then you thought, is this guy's name engraved on the trophy? 
I have to say the final wasn't a classic, but of course Higgins was involved and so it was absolutely absorbing. The thing with Bob Chaperon, the, the calling card for him was that he really shook on the shots and when he had a close-up of him playing, it was like, oh my God, how's he potting the balls? But he was really gritty and he ended up winning the match. That was, of course, the, the highlight of his career. Talking of the open draw, Darren Morgan drew... The first round wasn't open, but it was seeded, but then Darren Morgan... He drew Stephen Hendry, who he beat. Then he drew Steve Davis, who he got beat by. So it wasn't, you know, it was completely sort of random who you're going to get. The semi-finals, I mean, Steve James, I guess, would have been favourite coming in. He, he played Higgins. Bob Chaplin played Robert Marshall. You know, you wouldn't have picked that as a, as a last four, would you? Absolutely not, no. Absolutely not. For TV, of course, getting Higgins there was the best possible thing because he was still an extraordinary draw card. And we thought, could he possibly win another ranking title? And to be honest, when Chaperon came through, I thought Higgins was favourite to beat him. Maybe, we'll never know, but maybe Higgins thought that as well, and that applied extra pressure. Following year, interested in the semi-final lineup, and obviously there was a bit of luck involved in terms of avoiding each other before that, but it was Stephen Hendry versus Steve Davis, Jimmy White versus Gary Wilkinson, who had become a top player at that point, and in the final, Hendry beat Wilkinson. So, 91, it's almost like, unless you knew it was an open draw, you know, you, you'd have to be told, because that's, that could be any tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It was a really good tournament. One thing I must say here, by the way, the, the early British Opens were played at the Assembly Rooms in Derby, mm. which was an absolutely terrific venue. It really was. There was a major fire there a few years back, and so, consequently, it's off the radar now. But, yeah, it was a great atmosphere at that tournament. It was early in my career. I think it was my third year. And with the big names getting through, yes, we like to see shocks. Of course we do. But when the big names get through to the, the semi-finals, I think it gives the tournament extra cachet. And the final itself did not disappoint. Hendry was 6-3 down after the first session, really, really struggling. And although he didn't play his best to come back, he did come back to win 10-9. Gary, yeah, Gary was basically on home ground, wasn't he? Not, not from too far away. And that, would, that was a, a big chance for him to really make a name for himself. He, of course, he went on uh, to win the world match play, not a ranking event, a big tournament. But I wonder if he, he thinks still that that's sort of the one that got away because he was he was playing some really good stuff at the time. Yeah, I think he will definitely think that. And also, he's a great student of the game, Gary, and a really good guy as well. And beating Hendry in a ranking final for him would have been the bee's knees. So to lose ten nine and to Hendry with so much at stake, yeah, that must have stung. Just to pick up what you're saying about the assembly rooms, I mean, the, the, some of the venues then. They did have a bit of class about them, didn't they? Because often they were sort of theatre-type venues, obviously the Crucible, but you had the Hexagon in Reading as well. And the very nature of being a theatre, the acoustics have to be good, you know, the seats have to be comfortable. It's, it's kind of, they're not like, I mean, nothing against some of the leisure centres we go to, but they're not necessarily that compatible with snooker. They're very sort of soulless because they're so big. I mean, the one that we, that we did go to in Scotland, in, in Glasgow, is far too big for a snooker tournament. Um, but they were intimate, those venues, and, and they created that intimate vibe that we know from the World Championship really works for the sport. Yeah, you parked your car, you walked in, you walked up the stairs, and there was people milling around a bar there, and you just knew you were at, at a big tournament. You knew there was anticipation in the air, and also, the fact that you're going to get a big crowd, obviously certain sessions didn't, it's inevitable, but when you got down to the quarterfinals, semifinals and finals, all the big names were involved, then you knew you were in for a real treat. Well, 
one of the biggest names of all time, of course, Jimmy White. He won it in 92. But I think the star of the tournament was not the winner that year, was it? James Watanar, of course. Do you want to roll out your 147 story again, Phil, for those who don't know it? Well, OK, <laughs> I'm sweating now just thinking about it. So, Watanar was actually runner-up for three consecutive years, 92, 93, 94. Now, back then, I was writing for the Agent France Press, doing specials on the Asian players, but particularly James Watanar. So, I knew him well. Every match he played, I was getting quotes from him and we were sending out the stories. So that day, because I live in the West Midlands and it wasn't too far away, John D, who was our colleague and our really good mate, he said, I'll give you a lift up there. So he gave me a lift. He stopped off at some car showroom or other. <laughs> so now I don't like this because I've got this real... Real obsession about not being late for anything. It's yeah, and John kind of never liked to be early for anything. Uh, yeah, exactly. He was the opposite, wasn't he? Exactly. I, I, well, <laughs> that's the last time I ever got a look at him because I knew I could never be late again. But this. I'm a bit frazzled when we walk in. Walk up the stairs. Someone, I think it was actually the the resident bookmaker who was there, said, Have you heard? Watson has made a 147. An immediate cold sweat. Oh no. Walked into the press room. Everyone's in there saying, this is unbelievable. I said, yeah, what in a 147? Yeah, but don't you know, his father's been shot back in Bangkok in Thailand. Oh, no. So now I feel terrible, A, for James, and also for the fact that I should have got this story out much earlier. It was about an hour before I arrived that this had happened. Well, it's worth saying, it was only the fourth televised maximum ever. Exactly. So it's a big story, even without the, the drama off the table. It, it was a phenomenal break as well. It was really an interesting break to watch, and... Clearly, back then, it was a, a mega story. But then you add in the, the fact that Watson, the senior, had been shot. Then, subsequently, after the match finished, Tom Moran, James Watson's manager in one of the games, really nice blokes, told us all the assembled press that actually James's father had died. So suddenly, this is one of the most extraordinary stories in the history of the game. And I was running around like a a chicken with no head on, trying to get everything out, when normally I would be there, I'd be prepared, and although you're never really prepared for something of that magnitude, you get the story out a lot quicker. So it taught me one thing that, that did, never ever to be late again. Incredible run he had, given all of that, um, to still just focus on playing, and Jimmy was 7-0 up in the final, you know, absolutely coasting. In the end he wins 10-7, so what an I'll put him under it, and, and at that point, you had a sort of big four, didn't you? You had Hendry, Davis, Parrott and White. But Watanar was very much knocking on that door. He was a fantastic player. Well, he got to world number three, didn't he, at his best. And he won those back-to-back -back ranking titles in Thailand under immense pressure. You know, we were talking about viewing figures. This is a, a sort of a bit of a divergent from the, from the British Open. But we talk about viewing figures. When he won one of those ranking titles in Thailand, the population of Thailand was 60 million and 20 million were watching. Mm. And of course, when he did well in Britain, it created a big stir out there as well. We always wanted James to do well because he played the game very attractively. We knew that if he did well on our shores, that would mean more interest in Asia and therefore more tournaments. And he came so close to that British Open title, but look at the three people who beat him in finals, as you say, Jimmy White first, then Steve Davis, and then Ronnie O'Sullivan. Well, this is it. This is why I think it's wrong to say that 
and you'll hear it about someone like Watton, I should have won more. Well, like you say, I mean, look, those three people have beaten Jimmy White, Steve Davis, Ronnie O'Sullivan in finals. And of course, in the case of, well, Davis is in, an interesting one because by 93, the sort of perception was he's basically on the slide. Um, it's fair to say he didn't actually win that many more events after that, but, you know, he, he was still a top player. And of course, O'Sullivan was the opposite end of his career. He was just starting. He just won the UK Championship and a few months later won that British Open. So I suppose Watton are sort of caught, caught there in, in different eras, isn't he, against, against a player who's clearly an all-time great and a player who's about to become one. Yeah, I think Davis, 93, and bear in mind, of course, he won the, the Masters, I think, four years later. In 93, he wasn't on the slide, but he was walking up the stairs to get on it. <laughs> I think he knew that his best days were behind him. And of course, by 1993, his great rival and also friend, Stephen Hendry, was very much the man. But you can never, you can never write off Steve Davis. He was such a phenomenal player. And I think when he won that one, I think that gave him a, an extra pep, thinking, hold on a minute, you know, there's still titles there, as he subsequently proved. Yeah, well, of course, the 94 uh, event that was won by Sullivan, that was, it, it, ITV's uh, coverage ended in 93. 94 it went to Sky. You were very much involved in these years. So Ronnie wins the first of theirs. And then the next one was the first final between two teenagers in a ranking event, Ronnie and John Higgins. Um, two players who, it's fair to say, we've seen plenty of since and still, you know, at the top of the game now. Uh, and it was John who won that. And, and in fact, uh, that was the season where he became the first teenager to win three ranking titles. Only Ding Jun Wee's done that since. So again, you know, you saw the signs with O'Sullivan. You see them there with Higgins as well in this event. You know, two teenagers in a ranking year and final. Just digest that for a moment. Mm. These days, that would be almost, almost unimaginable. Back then, we took it for granted because people like Higgins and O'Sullivan were coming through. And you just knew, 95 final, OK, Higgins won, but you knew O'Sullivan would beat him on a, a large majority of occasions, or a, a large number of occasions as well. And you just knew that those two going forward would have a wonderful career. What we didn't know was that 26 years later, they're still right at the top of the tree. It's incredible. I mean, we'll come to 2004 later, but John Higgins, I mean, there won't be, he's not defending champion as such because there's no number one seed because it's an open draw. But he could still win the tournament this year. You know, I mean, you would not think back in 95, you wouldn't think fast forward 26 years. We know Ronnie's not in the tournament, but John Higgins, you know, that's not a shock if he wins it this year. I spoke to John Higgins and told him that he was defending champion, 17 years removed, and he was very amused by it. I think it's the lengthiest wait anyone's ever had to defend a title. But yeah, you're right, of course he could, of course he could win it. Higgins in 95, I think, was pretty much at the peak of his powers. What you've got to remember with John is that even though he was still in the early days of his career, at the age of 19, 20, 21... His tactical acumen, which is so celebrated these days, wasn't far off then what it is now. Mm. He was so far ahead of his years, and he was the the, the rounded-off package, the, the full package. He could play in any way you wanted him to. He could be patient, he could score heavily, he could deal with an O'Sullivan, he could deal with a Davis, he could deal with anyone. But... <laughs> the following year, he didn't win. And again, this is sort of another player of that era. I mentioned Gary Wilkinson, James Waters. And Nigel Bond, you know, had come to the fore. And, but it's getting over that last step. 
I think sort of a, maybe a, a comparison now would be someone like Karen Wilson, who is a top player for sure, but it's getting past that last man. It's getting past that Selby, that Trump, that Higgins, you know, Ronnie O'Sullivan. And Nigel Bond had, had sort of failed to do that, obviously he'd been in the World Final. Hendry kept beating him every year at the Crucible in various rounds. But 1996, you were there, Phil, and it's on YouTube. It's a fantastic watch. It went to the last black. He beat Higgins 9-8, having got a snook in the, in the decider. And that's a very good candidate for best British Open final ever. I think it is, definitely. Certainly in terms of, maybe not in terms of standard, but in terms of drama, undoubtedly. You know, I was just saying about the, the Wattener incident when I turned up late. Never did it again. Never. To this day, I've never done it again. John Higgins did something in that decider that he would never do again also. He punted the ball, frame ball, to get over the line, or he thought to get over the line. But he just dollied it in. He didn't play any kind of position when he could have done easily. He just wanted to make absolutely sure. That put him 69 ahead with 67 on. Bond got the snooker he needed, and in the end he cut in a really thin black from distance to win the title. For Higgins, that must have been such a blow because basically he got one hand and four fingers on that trophy. But wasn't it great for Bond? And I always remember I was commentating with Willie Thorne and Willie was a very emotional fellow, genuinely so. And at the end of that final, when Bondy was lifting up the trophy, I looked over to Willie and the tears were running down his face. I wanted to mention Willie, actually, because his commentary on it is excellent. And I, I do think... I was, I was interviewed the other day for a piece someone's writing about sort of how commentary's evolved. I do think he's a very important figure in TV commentary because if you listen to the sort of early years of snooker, there was no criticism really. It was all everyone's doing their best and everyone's great and all the rest of it, even if even if it was bad. Willie said it as he saw it. He said it as he would say it in the players' room. Sometimes, you know, maybe he was overcritical, but he definitely changed, I think, snooker commentary, made it more analytical, but made it more honest as well. Um, and... It's worth, as I say, it's on YouTube, it's worth checking out that decider. It's one of the great frames. I'm biased because I work with him a lot. And I have to say this, you know, he didn't know any of the, the background stuff. That was up to me, the, all the stats and things like that. But in terms of reading the game, he was far ahead of his years. And you're right, he was prepared to, to say something controversial if he believed it were to, was to be the case. You know, he had phrases like... Well, that wasn't the worst shot I've ever seen, but he was in the top three. He used to roll that out all the time. Always amused me. And even though he knew it might upset players, he didn't sit on the fence, and I really admired him for that. If you're bland in the commentary box, I think it reflects badly. I didn't think Willie was at his best when he was in a lead role mm. on a commentary. But when he was an analyst, I thought he was absolutely right up there. One of his great lines, we were at the World Cup. I'm not going to mention the player concerned because it was rather disparaging, but he said, he's talking about the, the Rolls-Royce Q action of one player. And he said, here's the Morris Minor Q action of the other. <laughs> now, can you imagine some of the old-timers saying something like that? Impossible. Yeah. OK, well, so Nigel Bond, 96. And I think at the, in this era, we start to see just the slight changing of the guard. Stephen Hendry's been, you know, at the top of the tree for a decade, basically. But these players who he's inspired are now starting to beat him. O'Sullivan's sort of beat him in a UK final. And the next two British Open finals, he loses to the other two of the Holy Trinity, the class of 92, uh, Williams and Higgins. In the face of Williams, 9-2, so a thumping win. 
Mark said afterwards, I'm gutted, I wanted to win 9-1. I mean, this is a, you know, he's talking about Stephen Hendry, that was a clue about Mark's personality. But at this era, it's those three that are starting to stand out. Absolutely. You know, Williams, Hendry was really friendly with Williams. Well, he says that's the biggest mistake he made, making friends. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Mark, I don't know whether he did this intentionally, but the guard came down, that bristling, I'm going to beat you guard, came down when he played Williams. And of course, after a couple of defeats, he did badly want to beat him. But then, of course, you know, the magic's gone. The 98 final against John Higgins. Now, that was massively significant mm. because Higgins needed to win that match, then win the world, champion, world championship, which was the next event, and hope that Stephen Hendry was beaten in the first round. If all of those things came true, then Higgins would be world number one and Hendry's eight-year reign as world number one would end. So Higgins won, come back win 9-8. Then he won the World Championship about a month later. Hendry lost in the first round to Jimmy White. And so suddenly, suddenly the King was dead and there was John Higgins at the top of the rankings. should be said by this point that the British Open is in Plymouth. Plymouth Pavilion is a lovely venue, another nice part of the world down by the sea there. They've got good crowds there. Of course, they had Andy Hicks, who they always sort of pin their hopes on, but... That was a, that was another good venue. It's a sort of place. I don't. I mean, I don't even know if the pavilions is still standing. I hope it is, but it's a sort of place you'd love to go back to. Absolutely great venue, really was. Our pal Neil Folds he tells a great story of playing kicks down there in front of a very boisterous crowd, and basically Neil lost his train of thought and potted two reds consecutively. Um, yeah, it was a, a really good venue, and in 1999, it provided, well, on paper, not an attractive final. But it was two players who we get on really well with, Dave, Fergal O'Brien and Anthony Hamilton. And you think, could they get bogged down? Could this be a real marathon? In the end, it was really entertaining stuff and good quality stuff, Fergal winning the title. Well, we had Fergal on a couple of weeks ago and uh, he was saying that, you know, Anthony, he started with two centuries, so the, sort of the marker was laid down. But Fergal won a lot of the close frames. Um, uh, it was just a great day for him and his family, wasn't it? Uh, you know, we, we all know how, how much he loves the sport, what he's put into it, and uh, what a great memory. The only, sort of, the only thing that took away from it was the fact that the, the next British Open was brought forward in the calendar, so he had about sort of five months to, to hold, hold on to the trophy. Well, it was April 99, and then the following season's British Open was in September 1999. And let's just say Fergal was not given a respectful TV slot as defending champion. I think he was tucked away on a morning session. It was not the right thing to do. And he was very upset in the press conference afterwards. I mean, genuinely upset. Mm. The next final, actually, there was a first in that. It was the first maximum break in a ranking final, courtesy of Stephen Hendry, beat Peter Ebden. Of course, it's interesting that because I think we were wondering, has the pendulum swung back? Because in the meantime, he's won his seventh world title. So you think, OK, he's had... It wasn't even... It wasn't in the doldrums as such. He just wasn't winning everything. Um, he was still winning tournaments, back as world champion. But I do think, I mean, he wins it again. We'll come on to that later. But I do think that seventh title, a lot of the intensity actually did go out of it. It was all about that for him. It wasn't. It was never about winning ten. It was about breaking the record, which at that point looked like it could possibly never be broken, and still hasn't been. Although obviously O'Sullivan, he's only one away. Um, so he was still playing great stuff, but he, he, I suppose after that, and maybe it's because it was just more good players, that intensity that he had just wasn't quite there. It wasn't. But you know we were talking about the guard against Mark Williams going down. Mm. Well, against his <laughs> opponent in the, yeah. the 99 final, 
that barrier, that guard, was taller than the Berlin Wall he was playing Peter Ebden. He was desperate to win any match against Ebden. Desperate. Now, he might dispute that and say, oh, no, he was just another player. He wanted to beat Ebden, perhaps more than anyone else. And Ebden made a pretty good start to that final. But then came the one four seven from Hendry. And I will say, while I enjoyed and I was thrilled by the Bond victory in 96, in terms of a single frame, I think my most enjoyable single frame was the one four seven. It was just wonderful to be involved with. And, you know, you've got the master making it. Mm. Peter Ebden did get his hands on the trophy the following year. Again, beat Jimmy White in the final. Jimmy having another sort of late rally. Um, there was a streaker, I think, in that one. We, we, we know we know a referee who was doing security who, who, who made it known to everyone who could see the streaker by just shouting streaker at the top of his voice, even though everyone could see that this lady had appeared. Um, and then 2001, that, now that was, uh, it was moved to Newcastle, um, which was kind of a bit of a new venue. Uh, John Higgins, he'd already won the first two tournaments of the season. He'd won the Champions Cup and the Scottish Masters. So... Beating Graham Dot to win the British Open, that's another record, the first three titles of the season. <clears throat> Phenomenal achievement. Now, you know, the press are very rarely responsible for a player winning a tournament, but I think we were partially responsible for that. Basically, Higgins in the semi-final played Mark King, and that day was the day when David Beckham scored his famous goal against Greece yeah. to qualify for the World Cup. So, of course, for a large chunk of that match, Higgins was watching it with us in the press room, and he was taking the mickey and saying, oh, England, out of another World Cup, blah, blah, blah. And he was having a great time. Then Beckham scored the goal, and we turned the tables, and we were giving him what for. So what did he do? He went out and took his, <laughs> took his angst out on poor old Mark King. I think it was 6-0. And then, of course, he beat Dot in the final, I believe, just... Point me in the right direction here, Dave. I think Dodd beat O'Sullivan in the other semi-final. Yeah, Ro Ronnie um, was not in a good place there. It was quite. Um, it was actually quite distressing he, he, the way he spoke afterwards. He, he said literally, I'd want, "Well, I'm not going to say what he said actually because it's it's quite uh, quite upsetting in some ways." But yeah, he wasn't in a good place. But you know, we Dotty, you know, he's he's an absolute warrior. I remember that uh, Beckham goal. The blood just drained from John's face, didn't it, when he went in because he had been given us plenty before it. And well, you, there's no answer to something like that. Um, the other, the yeah. other thing about that tournament was that it was a backdrop of terrible times in the world. And I believe, I believe that um, the coalition troops had gone into Afghanistan and all that kind of stuff. So it was a, it was a, a dark world scene. Yeah, and it was a pretty dark scene for snook as well. On the table, and we've been talking about it, you know, these guys keeping the game going, really. But the administration of the game at this point was, was starting to fail. It was coming up to the end of tobacco sponsorship, which was a big blow for the sport. And th so they started trying various gimmicks. And one of the things they tried was the red and blue shirts. You remember that? That was 2002 in Telford by, the, by this point. The British Open had moved to one player wore red, one player wore blue. On the face of it, there's no harm in it. But it kind of feels, looking back, a little bit desperate, as if that's going to save everything. Well, of course, the obvious thing to do, British Open... Union Jack, red, white and blue. Can you imagine a referee decked out in all white? <laughs> I think that would have been the last straw for those grumpies. <laughs> they would have said no to that and yeah. down tools, down gloves. Yeah. But yeah, it didn't sit well with me. Look, snooker's got some great traditions, one of which is the dress code. Now, I think for certain events it should be relaxed. Of course it should. 
But for big tournaments like the British Open, and let's face it, we've just been through the history of it. It is a big tournament. Just keep to the keep to the norm. Well, that event in 2002 was won by Paul Hunter. Now, whenever his career is discussed, it, the Masters is always talked about, understandably, because he won those three incredible finals. But it's worth remembering he won three ranking events as well, two Welsh Opens, and uh, and this event as well. And I'm sure you know would have carried on winning as well. And he was another key figure around that time because the game was struggling in terms of its management and that meant you know the finances that weren't there to put on that many tournaments but he had become a star at that point along with the likes of O'Sullivan and, and Higgins and the rest of them basically keeping the flame alive and he was a real star you know he exuded exuded star quality on and off the table when he played he played with a, a love of the game it was quite obvious he could play safe, of course he could, but he was at his best when he was playing attacking snooker and the way he looked, the the style he adopted, and the fact also, and I think this is very important, the fact he was a winner. Mm. All of those three things were the ingredients that the game needed, and we talk about this so often on commentary and in previous podcasts, and we'll do it again, but his loss was immeasurable. Yeah, very much so. Two to go. The next one, actually, I mean, this was another great final and an interesting one. Stephen Hendry, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Now, there's a lot of elements to this. One is that Hendry's cue had been broken not that long before, irreparably. Uh, the cue he'd won all these seven world titles with. Another was the the, the um, bust-up they'd had about 18 months earlier at the World Championship, which to this point had not been patched up. They weren't talking. So Hendry, you mentioned the Ebden match. Again, he's pumped up to win this. But the other is just the sheer standard. There were six centuries in a row in this match, three each. Um, this is nearly 20 years ago. Um, the two, the two greatest players of all time. Here we are in 2021. The standard. Let's just pick an arbitrary number here. The standard from 33 to 1 to 8 now on the tour is definitely better than it was then, mm. undoubtedly. Maybe even from 17 to 1 to 8. But right at the top, these guys were titans. It was a clash of the titans, mm. and it lived up to expectations. I loved every moment of it. Yeah, and by this point we're in Brighton, which is obviously quite a sort of um, vibrant place. There's a good vibe about the event. But as I say, the problem was that the, the game's administration was going down the plug hole sky at this point after this final packed in snooker. They went with Barry Hearn's Premier League. So 2004 Eurosport stepped in to televise what we thought was going to be the last British Open until it was revived this year. John Higgins won it, so that's his fourth title, equaling Hendry's record in the event. Um, he beat Steve Maguire in the final, and in a way, Maguire, this was his sort of flowering. And also Sean Murphy, who beat in the semis, of course, went on to win the World Championship. Maguire went on to win the UK. So again, there was a slight, what looked like a sort of slight changing of the guard. Now, actually, the guard hasn't changed, because John Higgins is still right up there, and Ronnie's right up there. But these new players coming through, obviously, was good for the game as well. Well, do you remember the most famous quote, I think, regarding Steve Maguire was Ronnie O'Sullivan, wasn't he? when he won the UK Championship in saying, Maguire will dominate the game for the next 10 years. Now, at the time he said that, while I didn't fully agree with him, I knew where he was coming from, because Maguire, at his best, back then, was simply wonderful to watch. He'd made a succession of centuries to get to the final, and he'd beaten some really good players. And I thought Ronnie had got a point that Maguire could be the next in line to be the world number one, the, the man who was going to go on and replace John Higgins and Stephen Hendry as the big Scott who won 
so many tournaments, and while he's had a very good career, it didn't quite pan out that way. But Higgins, in that final, he potted so many phenomenal pressure balls, I recall, just at the right time. And you realise then, OK, he's still pretty much the man. Mm. It was actually his first ranking title since he'd won the British Open three years earlier, so it just shows you, I guess, in a long career, you know, you have peaks and troughs. I mean, like I say, 2001, he won three tournaments in a row, then didn't win another ranking event for three years. In terms of Maguire, I mean, this is the thing, and maybe not specifically him, but just generally, not everyone actually in sport does have that drive to try and win everything. Some people actually do see it as a career. They want to earn a nice living for themselves and their family, and maybe they don't want to go that extra mile to be all out and, you know, absolutely everything's about winning and losing. I mean, I don't think it was Paul Hunter everything was about winning and losing, as you've already said. Um, other players are just driven to do that. But that was, that was it, wasn't it? 2004, this was a bad time off the table. The game on the table has always been great. Off the table, things had gone badly wrong. The British Open fell off the calendar, which was a great shame. But it's back and, um, you know, it's a new format. But it's 100 grand <laughs> to someone at the end of the week. So here we are, you know, it's going to be a week in August. When's, when is the snook in Britain in August? It's a great bonus for all the players, I think. Yeah, that 2004... Uh, British Open. We used to stay at a hotel in Brighton called The Ship, and then The Ship sailed. <laughs> now, 17 years later, yeah. after a, a circuitous journey, it's docked, if you can do, in, in Leicester. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to the tournament, I must say. It's a great title to have back on the circuit. It's a brand new tournament, and the fact that it's going to be covered again by ITV, I think it's got to be a massive plus. The only thing I would say is that an open draw from round one, I'm not so sure, because I like the open draw, don't get me wrong, I think it's great for 64-32 onwards, but the reason it was so compelling back in the day, it was a televisual event, the tournament had started and then you had the open draw, so you don't really gain a lot from having an open draw well before the event, before the TV cameras are rolling, all you do is you might get some really big players up against each other and you lose them prematurely. Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see who ends up as the winner. You know, they'll be joining a, a great role of honour. Obviously, the final's only best of 11. The only real event you can compare it to was the World Open 2010, which also had the best of fives. It had a best of nine final. And in that final, uh, Neil Robertson beat Ronnie O'Sullivan. So in the end, the cream rose to the top. It's got to be said, they never had that event again in that iteration. Didn't really necessarily... Uh, sort of take off, but here we are, it's 2021 now, uh, with, they're trying something new, let's hope everyone supports the event, and of course tickets on sale to come to the Morningside Arena in Leicester and watch it. Phil, thank you, and uh, let's hope that this year's event creates more great memories for this great tournament. Sports Social Podcast Network.